All right, so uh, last night we looked at faith with Abraham. And I hate being this high, but that's just kind of where we are because there's no place to stand. Uh, We looked at faith with Abraham and how he, I mean, it's like the ultimate trust, isn't it? I mean, that he is willing to give up what he had hoped for, longed for, wished for, he had waited for for 25 years. He is willing to give up to his God. None of it made sense. None of it is really fathomable to me. And yet Abraham was willing to rise early, to climb the mountain, to raise the knife, and to tell his son the Lord will provide, and he did. But tonight we are moving from faith into doubt. To look at what doubt means in our life and how it begins to overwhelm us. Faith is what we desire. Faith is what we Hope for faith is what we want to say is could be said about us, but doubt is really what rules and reigns too often. Doubt tells us that our future is doomed every time we think we bombed a test. That we are worthless every time we get rejected. That we are destined for insignificance every time that we can't find that perfect job that will give us a good resume because then we will never be able to get anything else. Doubt tells you and I that we are unlovable, that we have ruined our chance, that we have missed our opportunities, and that we are fated for nothing but failure. Doubt tells us that we're not as good as him, we're not as nice as her, we're not as liked as them. We are not as good or anywhere close to what they can do, so why even bother trying? Even when things are going well, Doubt still screams into our souls and tells us that what if and that it is going to come crashing down and it is going to be ruined. And yeah, you feel like things are going well right now, but it isn't going to last. Doubt often terrifies us from even trying because we're so fearful of failure. Doubt reminds us of our inadequacies, our insecurities, and our inabilities. Doubt is our greatest critic, and it's oftentimes the wisdom that we allow to speak the loudest. So tonight we're going to look at doubt. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, so if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to turn there if you want to follow along. It's going to be on the screens always, and that's always just easier for me to follow with. But Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to set up where we're going to be. We're going to be in 22, but don't worry about being there right now. What's happened is Jesus, according to Mark, has just sent out his disciples two by two. The twelve have gone out into nearby towns and things have gone well. People are repenting, demons are being cast out, and they are even doing healings. So they are coming back on a spiritual high, having seen God work and seen their faith in action. But Jesus, during that time that they were out, gets terrible news. His friend, the one that saw him for who he was and who pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist has been beheaded at the declaration of Herod. So the disciples come back excited, and Jesus is sorrowful. And Jesus says, We need a retreat. We need to get away. We need to kind of refuel and refill. We need to get in a better place because we are exhausted. We have been going for so long. We are tired, so let's get away. 
The problem is they get on the boat and they try to go and get away, but the crowd follows. They follow them on the shore as the boat is going across the water because they're that wanting and that desiring of Jesus. And so Jesus pulls the boat over. He gets off and he begins to heal. To heal the sick and to take care of the people because he has compassion on them, Matthew will tell us. But as Jesus is doing this healing ministry, evening comes and with that hunger. The disciples in their pragmatic approach to life say, Jesus, we need to send them. We're in a desolate place. We don't have enough food, nor if we did, it would cost too much. We need to get rid of this crowd because they need to go. Yeah, we've seen all this faith happen, but Jesus, okay, we've got to be practical now. Send them away. And Jesus says, go and collect whatever food. You know the story. They come back and say, hey, we got five loaves of bread and we got two fish from this kid. Jesus says, all right, bring it to me. I'll take care of it. And Jesus feeds the 5,000. But that is going to just be the setup of what we are doing tonight. In Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, this is just after the feeding of the 5,000. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed the crowd, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Jesus says, hey guys, I know that we all need rest. You go on ahead, and I'll take care of this. I'll send them out. What I don't understand is, how is Jesus going to meet back up with them? I mean, he didn't have like his rental car that he could just hop in. I don't know if there was extra boats that he had. But somehow, and Matthew's just okay with this, Jesus says, you guys go ahead, and I'll catch up. And so they do. They're out on the waves in the wind. Jesus dismisses the crowd, but he doesn't hurry to go catch up. Instead, he goes and prays. He's praying, being refilled and refueled, reconnecting with his God. This was only a four or five mile wide lake. And so this was, should have been a journey for these experienced fishermen that was pretty easy to accomplish But it says in verse 25, as we continue reading, and the fourth watch, this is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., so put it probably about 4 a.m. in the morning. It says, he came to them walking on the sea. I'm sure these fishermen, these followers of Jesus are going, we are exhausted, we are frustrated and flustered, we are upset by what is going on, the wind is against us, and then they see In the distance, something they've never seen before. Something unnatural, something supernatural. They're freaking out, it says. When the disciples saw him walking, verse 26, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. They don't know what is going on. And they're terrified, rightfully so. Something is hovering over the water and coming towards them. And Jesus calms their fears. And he says, it is I. Here's where we get into the story of doubt. Then Peter boldly speaks. Verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Craig Blumberg, a commentator on Matthew, says, we should probably not translate it, if it is you, 
But a more appropriate translation is, since it is you. Lord, since it is you. Jesus, since it is you out there and you're doing this amazing thing, tell me I can come and be a part. Invite me to experience this amazing thing. Invite me to join you out on the water. Let me be a part of what you are doing. And Jesus' answer is simple and quick. Come. So Peter gets out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus or towards Jesus. I guess Peter, with the memories of what's happened, he has just exercised demons. He has just healed sick people. He has just seen Jesus turn this five loaves and two fish into leftovers for 5,000. He is amazed at what is going on. He knows that faith in God can do amazing things. And so he says, Jesus, I want to be a part. And so he steps out. Defying gravity and science and logic, he steps out of the boat and onto the water. I have no clue what that would be like. I don't know if it's like a trampoline that kind of is like moving underneath you. I don't know if it's like standing on a boat where you're just kind of like trying to maintain what's going on. I don't know if he's sinking in, if it's like walking in mud or if you kind of walk on top. I don't know how this feels, but what we do know is that Peter is walking on water like Jesus is. For a moment. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter is moved from Lord, invite me out to Lord, save me. I remember when Cooper was learning to walk. Yeah, another Cooper story. Sorry, I'm learning about God through this. When he was learning to walk, you had to hold his hand. And he could go everywhere. Not big Cooper, little Cooper. <laughs> On your hands, he could go everywhere. He could mosey. He could get anywhere he wanted. He could go as fast as he wanted. As long as he was holding your hands, but the second you tried to release, he immediately dropped. See, he could walk as long as he had the crutches. <laughs> But the second you pulled it away, he sat down and he started crawling. He would do the same thing with furniture. He would hold on to the skull and he could walk all the way around it. But he would reach and reach to get to what he wanted to. But the second that it was too far, he dropped down and crawled. See, Cooper had the ability, but he lacked the faith. He could walk. He didn't believe he could. And this was hard because he knew he could crawl. And he knew crawling was successful, and crawling allowed him to accomplish what he needed. And crawling was enough to get the job done. Sure, crawling scraped up his knees. Sure, crawling was not as fast as us walking, but for Cooper, it was. He would say, yeah, I would prefer crawling because this seems more difficult, it seems more risky, and I could fall down. So why would I ever try to do something new because that has inherent risk? I'm going to do what I'm comfortable in, what I know how to do, and what doesn't take faith. So to teach baby Cooper to walk was to teach him how to have faith. 
to teach him to believe in what he could accomplish, but didn't trust he could. And there were small things where you gave him a foot to try to walk and then he would catch you. And then you would take two feet and you would allow him to do these baby steps, I guess, so that he could learn how to walk. See, doubt enters in Peter's mind when he realizes what is happening. When the danger hits, when the wind picks up, It's interesting what verse 30 says because it says, and Peter looked at the wind, I believe it says, when he saw the wind. What's interesting is that wind is not something we can see. We can see the effects of the wind, but we cannot see the wind, right? Wind blows the rain, so we know that it's windy. We feel the wind, but we can't see it. Wind will blow the tree limbs, or it'll probably make the waves go up bigger and stronger and faster and higher, but wind is not something we can see What Peter saw is the danger that the wind created. And when Peter saw danger, he chose to doubt. He chose to give in. And in fear, he began to sink. While in faith, he was walking. Once we let danger speak, it's hard to get it out of our voice. Or out of our head, excuse me. When I was growing up, we had a pool. And I remember, you know, when you have a pool, especially when you get it, I think we got it like ninth or 10th grade, it was fun to do like the maintenance work on the pool. Like you didn't mind using the little net and reaching in, you know, like that was cool. You didn't mind grabbing the skimmer basket and seeing, oh my gosh, I can't believe how many pine needles are in this. Like for some reason that's cool when you first get it. But then I remember my dad came in and he said one time, oh, I found a snake in the skimmer basket. If you have a pool, you've probably had that happen before. Humble brag, I guess. Like, it's not like, wow, sorry, yeah. Wow, we get it. So, no. Just making sure you're still awake. All right. Uh, no, but every single time then after it was my job to reach in and to pick up the skimmer basket, there was fear, right? What could be in there? Before, I did it, no big deal, but once danger presented itself, Danger then ruled. I was even then began to be nervous to swim near where the skimmer stuff goes into. You know that little inlet on the side of the pool? Because what if that snake was not content just being in the skimmer basket, but wanted to come out and to bite me? And so like I didn't ever want to put my back near that because danger was so real because I just got nervous. See, danger then speaks to us. Maybe while we were in the woods today, you've interacted with snakes and you go, I don't want to see a snake. And so you were watching carefully what was going on. Maybe it's spiders or we found a scorpion today when we were cutting the wood. And Cooper said, I've never seen a scorpion before, but he was legitimately terrified of the scorpions. He did not like the scorpions one bit. And so after that, when we were grabbing those pieces, he kind of watched for scorpions. See, once danger enters, it's really hard to get it out. Danger enters for Peter when the wind starts to pick up. And danger causes him to doubt. Verse 31 is a frustrating verse for me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him. That doesn't frustrate me. I'm okay with Jesus saving Peter as he sings. I'm good with that. Here's what I'm frustrated with. 
And he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, I oftentimes, not in a great way, but in his troubled moments, see myself as Peter. Peter's the brash. He jumps in. He speaks before he thinks. I've probably done that in front of you before. Peter is the one that's like, yeah, I want to do it. I'm the first one. Peter's the one that is gung-ho, that is first in line. Peter is so excited, and he gets scolded. Here's where I'm frustrated. Peter's the only one of those dudes outside the boat. Nobody else believed. Nobody else thought that they could step on the water. Peter did, and Peter's getting to be chastised for his lack of faith. That doesn't make sense to me. Why is Peter scolded? Jesus uses in Matthew 8 the same terminology or the same phrase. Once again, his experienced fishermen were on a boat and the storm picked up and the effects of the wind were causing them a lot of issues. Jesus is asleep down at the bottom of the boat and they're freaking out, thinking we're going to die. And they go and wake up Jesus and they say, save us, save us. And Jesus scolds them with the same terms. Oh, you of little faith. Here's what I think Jesus is frustrated about. Peter, your doubt now makes no sense. You've already seen me work. You've been walking on water. Why are you going to doubt now? You've been doing it. You've believed. You've, like you've, you've gotten to experience it. You are near me. You're closer to me. You're the only one out of the boat. And yet now, in this moment, you choose to doubt? It was already illogical, everything that you were doing, and now you're going to let logic play its part? You're going to let it speak? I mean, it makes more sense that the fourth step out on the water is going to be just as easy as the third step. Why would you sink now? And yet Peter doubts. But that's the thing about doubt is it doesn't make sense. It's not logical, and here's how we know that. You have worried about so many things that never happened, but you are terrified they might. You have worried about so many things that I wonder if this person's mad and they're not responding in this time and they they didn't answer this. And and so they definitely are upset. And then we think through all of these things that we could have seen or we should have seen. And then we get in touch with them and everything's good. We've worried and doubted and, and seen the danger, but it never happened. We allow fear to rule so often. See, doubt speaks to our insecurities and it begins to question our faith. It denies the power, the goodness, the faithfulness of God and points out what could happen, what should happen, and what might happen. And we're about to go on a long tirade of what doubt says, so hold on. Doubt overlooks the fact that you're three steps on the water and asks you, what if the next step doesn't happen? Doubt discounts the fact that God has been faithful and good, and he begins to question him now, wondering, well, is he still going to be faithful? Is he still going to be good? Is he still going to help? Is he still going to provide? Sure, he's done it for the last 19 years, but what about tomorrow? (coughs) Doubt tells you that surrendering to ministry is a waste of life, a forfeit of riches, a risk to your happiness, and a choice for uncertainty. Doubt tells you that while you believe that God is calling you to nursing or accounting or engineering, 
that he's abandoned you in this pursuit. He's leaving you without a job, with a poor resume, and unable to pass Okim. There's no hope on the horizon. Doubt tells you that you're too ugly, too messed up, too shy, too dumb, too unlikable to ever be loved. Doubt tells you that you're never going to amount to anything. That your failures are too great, your history is too bad, your addiction is too strong, your knowledge is too small, and that you're unimportant and unworthy. Doubt tells you that you have ruined your chance with God. That you have drained the cup of grace. That you have used your final chance and no extra chances exist. (coughs) Doubt tells you that your history has imprisoned you. And become a barrier for God to ever use you. Doubt tells you that hoping is a waste of time. It tells you that God can't work through you. That he won't work through you. Doubt tells you that what is ahead is too difficult, too much, too challenging, too great. Doubt tells you that the waves are stronger than Jesus. And each time we try to take steps of faith, you know what happens? The wind picks up. Each time we try to move towards Jesus, to to go towards Him and to do the impossible, danger presents itself and says... What you're doing isn't going to work. The wind picks up, causing fear, anxiety, and telling you just to quit. The only way to combat doubt is to cling to faith. I think the major shift in the story of Peter walking on water are in his eyes. See, he steps out the boat looking at Jesus. And he begins to sink looking at the waves. As long as he is looking at Jesus and trusting him, he's held above the water But danger says, look at the waves. Look at the difficulty. Look at the danger. Look at what could go wrong. Faith is the only thing that can overcome doubt. And I know that's hard to believe and it seems theoretical and it seems impractical. And again, you're going, Jordan, just give me like, you know, like three points to how to overcome doubt. I don't have them. But I do know that faith can overcome doubt. The Word tells us that. Our God is bigger than whatever we are going through. And we've had to experience that before. In December of 2015, Carlin and I experienced one of those earth-shattering, soul-shaking, God-questioning moments. And I've shared this before, but it's still like, it is still one of those life-changing moments for us that I can't shake because it it really did grow me. But in December of 2015, we walked through a miscarriage. And the whole time in the aftermath, what you're doing is you're saying, why, God? Why us? Why did you allow that to happen to us? Where are you? Why? I believe that you hold all creation, that you are the great healer, that you are all able. Why did we have to experience this? It's not outside your realm of ability, and yet you chose not to act. Yeah, lots of questions of why, 
begin to be prayed up to God. But I really believe that in those valleys are where, I mean, this is true, but in the valley is where the greenest grass is, and in these valleys of our life is where we can grow. Nine months later, after getting that news in December, we learned that we were pregnant. We had just moved here, and so that was kind of stressful. We learned that we were pregnant. But here's how we handled that for the first few months. Scared to death. Timid. Almost holding back our excitement because we didn't want to endure disappointment. And so you don't have as bad of disappointment if you don't get excited. If you tell yourself you're going to fail, then only good news can come if you pass, right? If you can convince yourself that you're not going to be good enough, that you're never going to get in, that they would never accept you, that he would never like you, then if he does, it's only good news. But you so, we so prepare ourselves for the worst possible thing. Here's the problem. That robs us of our joy. And for those first four months, we didn't want to tell anybody we were pregnant. Eventually, after we did, we didn't really want to get excited. Not that we weren't excited, but we were afraid to be excited. I could see it written all over Carlin's face that she was scared to death, and each morning she needed a reminder that Cooper was alive, honestly. And so when a kick didn't happen for a few hours, when a stomach pain was felt, And I tell you, the worst was every single doctor visit, wondering, are they going to hear a heartbeat? I remember one day, and this was into the spring, so a few months before he was born. We were kind of dragging our feet through things because if we didn't make it real, then we couldn't be disappointed as much. And I looked at Carlin and I just said, we have. To stop living in fear. We have to get excited. We have to have faith. We've got to start buying clothes. We've got to start building a registry. We've got to start preparing the nursery. We cannot let fear rule us. We have to believe that good will come. And yeah, to get excited risks disappointment but we have to put ourselves out there and become vulnerable and to trust or else we live a life in such a safe and secure and isolated little bubble that we never experience life because we're so afraid of what the experiencing life can bring. If we have to go through that day, then we'll learn how to go through it. But we're not going to allow the potential what if to rob us of the excitement of what is going on right now. So go and have baby showers. Go and celebrate. Go and dream. Go and be excited. See, I hear that way too much among you guys. Oh, I'd never get it. I'm never going to get in. Oh, there's, there's no way that they would pick me. There's no way that they would hire me. There's no way that uh, my grades are good enough. There's no way that I even passed that test. There's no way I can get through this. And then you come out on the other side like roses. Like you guys are accomplishing and doing and have all these things. I want you to dream big and not sit in what you think won't never disappoint you. Protecting yourself 
from potential disappointments is no way to live. So apply to NASA. Go and do what you think is best. Just because they're the best, they should want you, not you should worry that they would never accept you. You guys, and I do it too, so don't just think I'm just beating you down. You guys are so prone to stare at the waves. And you would tell me, yeah, I believe that I am called to be this. And yet all you do is stare at the waves and not at Jesus who has called you there. You get so consumed and concerned with what could happen. And what if I fail this? And what is my career going to look like? And what is my future going to look like? And if I ruin everything, and instead of looking at Jesus and going, hey, you've called me to this. And even if I make a C, I make a C, but I'm pursuing you and I'm doing the best that I can. We've got to stop looking at the waves. The wind's going to pick up. Every doctor visit was a reminder of the wind. Every abnormality, everything. But having Cooper has probably taught me more about faith. Not that I'm encouraging you to do this right now. All right? So, yeah. Not not an object lesson I want you to participate in. But, you know, like... Just gain it from me. It's taught me more about faith because so much is out of my control. And so as we sit in the delivery room and I wonder, why is he not breathing for the first five seconds? And this woman is just beating the mess out of me. He's purple as can be. I'm going, is this normal? And they're like sucking stuff out. And then finally, after probably 10 seconds, he cries. Or the night that I give him just a minuscule amount of peanut butter and five minutes later, he's got a weird cry and 10 minutes later, his throat's locking up and 15 minutes later, the woman in the stupid doctor's office is arguing with me saying the doctor is busy and I'm saying my son might be dying and she says, I can just put you on the waiting list. Yeah, I was not happy that night. Um... Even every single day when you drop him off at school. And every few months we'll get a text saying, hey, the school's on lockdown because of something. You want to doubt. But we have to look at Jesus and not the waves. So you have a few options here. For some of you, You have lived your life in the boat. You go, no, I'm good. I'm just going to stay right here. Yeah, it's it's rocking pretty hard. Yeah, we haven't gotten very far. And yeah, it's struggling. But this is safe and secure. I'm just going to stay here. Some of you are so impressed by Peter, but you go, I just can't do that. Man, I wish that I could go and step out of the boat. I wish that I could believe. I wish that I could get there. But reality is just so strong. See, you want that perfect thing that Jesus is calling you to. But you do nothing because you're so worried about picking the wrong thing. You're so worried about trying to find what's perfect that you're not willing to just go and do. But I said it last week. There there's never going to be a perfect spouse for you. And I would say that if Carlin was in here too. Don't think I'm just like bad her at all. You're never going to have a perfect job. I love my job, but it is not perfect. You're never going to have a perfect house, a perfect neighborhood, a perfect life. You're never going to have those sort of things. 
And here's the problem. A lot of you don't even enjoy or step out and do what you enjoy because you're so worried with trying to find the perfect. Others of you are going to step out like Peter. I hope that's most of you. That you see Jesus and you say, can I come out and be a part? Since it is you, will you invite me out? And you step out. And yeah, there's going to be moments where you sink. We have those moments. But you're stepping out onto the waves. It'd be safer, warmer, drier in the boat. You'd risk not failing in the boat. If you don't try, you can't fail. But that's not what faith is about. That's what you've come to believe. But Jesus invites you to come. He says to Peter, come. To the little children, come to me. To the heavy laden, come to me. To the weary and the worn out, come to me. To the sinners with a disgusting history, come to me. To the addicted, to the hurting, to the anxious, come to me. Come and find rest. Come and receive love. Come and be taken care of. Come and lay down your fears. Come and accept my approval. Come and embrace my running to you. Come as you are. Come stained in sin and swallowed in guilt. Come broken and beat up. Come hungry and hurting. Hurting, excuse me. My Alabama came out. (laughs) Come and be with me. Come and accept my grace. Come and follow me. I hope that you will live a life in faith, risking failure, risking disappointment, being willing to lose, being willing to not get it, being willing to put yourself out there. I know it's intimidating, it's scary. When I applied for this job, there was no reason for me to get it. I wasn't risking that much because I didn't know anybody. I get that. But I threw it out there going, God, I know you're calling me to college ministry, but there's just not a lot of opportunities. And there was doubts of, should I sacrifice this calling to go and do something else? And then it pops up. And then in faith, we just kept pursuing, believing and trusting If you don't risk, you can't really take steps of faith. And we're called to come and to follow Jesus. I love the song, the old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. See, I think that we are so quick to turn our eyes to the waves and start being overwhelmed by all the danger that exists. At the very end, I need to and then print this on my paper. At the very end of Matthew 14, uh, that section of Peter. Or Matthew 14, yeah. It says, and when they got into the boat, it says, those in the boat worshipped him. Verse 33, saying, truly, You are the Son of God. If you have not come to a point where you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, then none of this makes sense, honestly. But as those of us who believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died 
on the cross to save us from our sin and who calls us to faith and to a relationship and to follow him, we've got to step out of the boat. We have to. Let me pray for us as we close. Dear Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of how quickly we shift our eyes